What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Life After High School, the number one podcast in Sudbury, where we dive into the lessons learned, the losses, and the lifestyles of the amazing guests by asking them the skill testing questions, critical thinking ones, and the ones that get the answers you need to help you be a bit better every single day. Thanks for tuning in. I love you guys and enjoy the show. It's the Life After High School podcast. Mike, first and foremost, before uh, we kind of introduce you, I uh, I always think I'm uh, just a little fun thing. I'm always f- convinced I'm an adult until I meet people like you who like dress like an adult. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, uh, I'm not mildly intimidated, but something like that, like we're approaching that. So yeah, man, first, uh, first thing, I'm uh, fired up to have you on the show today. Um, I've known of you for a bit now, and then we recently got connected and yeah, man, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing your story and uh, talking more about uh, about you and learning more about you. So uh, thanks for coming on the show, man. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks for having me. I picked up my best dad clothes for the interview today. So <laughs> normally on the weekends, I'm, I'm in the in the sweatshirt and in uh, in comfy pants. But uh, yeah. you know, today it's a work day, so work day. gotta gotta put on the, the adult clothes, so to speak. <laughs> I love that. All right, awesome, man. So welcome. Now, take us through kind of your. Uh, like uh, a bit of a timeline for you from uh, leaving post-secondary, what that experience was like for you, and then uh, we can kind of bring it to where we are now and we can go back through it full circle. Yeah, so I mean, post-secondary was a bit of a ride for me. Um, I went into it not knowing what I wanted to do. I'm not even knowing what I wanted to study. Um, So like I went into a program that I really had no interest in being in, and if you were to pull up my transcript right now, like my grades would reflect all of that, right? So then by halfway through post-sec, um, I kind of realized what I wanted to do and I went yeah. into a program that I think was better suited for my interests. And then from there, that kind of put me on a journey where I was gonna pursue history as a career. So I went off to graduate school, I mm-hmm. uh, did a couple more degrees there, thought I was gonna go into academia and be a professor. Just quickly realized while I was in graduate school that wasn't really something I wanted to do. Um, as much as I loved history and I loved research and writing, yeah. and I did love teaching, the way that you have to tell stories as a professional historian versus just a storyteller or a writer was not what I was interested mm. in. I just want to tell a good story. I didn't want to have to talk about how this always ties back to the literature and how my yeah. study is different from other people's things. And so I just realized that that's probably not what I'm going to do. And I mean, admittedly, the job market for uh, professors is pretty limited in Canada. Yeah. We had a goal of coming back and staying in Sudbury. So I mean, that really limited me to Laurentian. Uh, yeah. And there's there's obviously not a revolving door of, of jobs there for people who have PhDs in history, right? So no. I, I was like, I, no. I'm not going to be able to do this job, and I'm not really sure I want to do it, so what else can I do? And that kind of put me on a path where you know, I had some advice from an old professor that said, you know, market yourself as broadly as you can. You obviously mm. have history degrees, but like, what do those degrees signify like communication mm. writing uh researching analytics like interesting all yeah. that stuff so i started i started to think like i have these skills and maybe yeah. other employers haven't considered hiring a history grad but that's kind of the way right. i went about it, is that like if you're looking for somebody to do policy work or if you're looking for somebody to write grants i can do all these things and that's yeah. really what started and so you I looked took, at it as like a skill thing yeah right exactly ah smart yeah. Okay, cool. Because even when I went to my, my, my first job out of post-sec, um, they asked me in the interview, like, why should we why should we hire a historian? Like, why would we hire you? 
and it was for a, it was for a policy analyst job. And typically in that line of work, you're either uh, an economist or you have a poli sci degree, right? Mm. So I had to explain that, like, yeah, you've never hired a historian before, but like, I can write, I can research, I can communicate, yeah. I can cr- uh, think critically. Like, this is why you should hire me. Yeah. And then a few days went by because this was the second interview. Like, this was a question that was posed to me at a lunch. And then I didn't get a call that day, yeah. and I'm like, I'm not going to get the job. Like, yeah. I guess my answer didn't work. I eventually did get the job. Yes, let's go. But, uh, so let's I don't, go. I don't know if it was my sales pitch at the lunch, or yeah. they just maybe I was the last uh, candidate standing. Yeah. But it, oh, it worked, funny. and I was there for for a couple of years. So yeah, yeah. So kind of, I think now would be a good time to ask this. What's your, um, what would you say is a good, um, like, what makes a good story for you? I think something that other people can relate to and maybe mm. see themselves in, or at least can kind of re- that resonates with them. So I mean, yeah. I do a lot of uh, a lot of the stories I tell are hockey focused. I mean, yeah. obviously in a medium or in a in a genre like sports writing, um, you're speaking to fans of the sport. So if I'm mm. writing a story about the Toronto Maple Leafs, odds are yeah, there's either Leafs fans that are of my vintage or yeah. older or younger that you know have heard some of these stories or they experienced it firsthand. They're either at the game or they watched it, yeah. and they'll relate to it and kind of think about it that way, right? But the other stories I write, whether it was the st- work I was doing before in history, it's just about like what's a compelling narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Like why would anybody want to read the story about a forest fire uh, in 1948? And so like you got to pull out the threads to say it's an interesting story because. It, relates to you know yeah, managing that? like the you know, forest lands and yeah. maybe there's an element of corruption and that's interesting and people like to read always, about that yeah, so always. i think for me it's always like you know why would people care to read this mm. and then you have to be a, a good writer right again yeah. i'm always trying to improve my writing but i think at the end of the day you could have a really great idea and a really great narrative but if you yeah. can't tell that story in a compelling way mm. that makes you want to keep reading then you're going to lose your readers interesting so Take us back, because I think that's a good way to go into hockey. Tell us your, because you've worked a lot in hockey, you've uh, published books in that space, and I'm wondering what you, and you're you're currently the like the historian for the Wolves as mm-hmm. well? Yeah. Awesome. So, and we'll get to that in a bit, but I want to know uh, where did like that love for hockey stem from? Because you play, right? Like, you, mm-hmm. like you've like uh, you worked with different like teams and stuff like that. So, yeah, take us through kind of where that hockey love stem from. Yeah, I mean, it started off as a kid. Like, I didn't play organized hockey. I played, yeah. like, hockey on backyard rinks and things like that. But I was really big into collecting hockey cards and reading huh. the stories, yeah. like, on the back of the cards and kind of getting into the history. And then I just always was drawn to history in general, and that's kind of where I ended up going with my yeah. with my studies. And then while I was uh, at McMaster, I was I was doing so much writing and reading, like, for for my studies that yeah. I was like, I can't, this is, I need to, I need to have a release, some sort of creative outlet. That's not just yeah. writing essays and, and reading books that I otherwise probably wouldn't read. Yeah. And so I'm like, what else could I write about? And I'm like, well, I can write about pretty much anything. And that point I was really starting to get back into like, um, I was getting into, uh, p- pools with my buddies, like, uh, hockey pools. Yeah. And I'm like, well, maybe I can write about hockey. Like, I mean, this was a time like in the, you know, 2010s, 2011s, when, like, blogging was really starting to become oh, sick, yeah. popular. And, like, you started to see, like, bloggers yeah. kind of break into the mainstream where it's not just, like, newspaper reporters and, yeah. you know, journalists that were writing these stories. Like, blogs were putting out, you know, analysis of games. They were doing their own stories. So I'm like, maybe I'll do that. Oh, smart. But the way that I approached it at first was I was going to take what I knew, which was Canadian history, yeah. and then I was going to kind of meld it with hockey. So I was doing this, like, format where I would say, like, on this day... 
you know, in 1941, yeah. this happened in Canada, and then here's the run of the games that are happening tonight, and here's what I think is going to yeah. happen in these games. So it was a bit of this, like, hockey history Frankenstein that probably yeah. was only appealing to, to me and people who liked history. Yeah. I did that for a while, and I kind of realized I've got to drop the Canadian history element, mm. and I just focus on hockey history. And that's that's really how it started. And, I mean, from there, I think it was just continuing to market myself as uh, – as a hockey historian, as much as I didn't study hockey history, which is which is a subfield in its own right, sport history is a huge, you know, field that you could study. Why I didn't go into sport history, I'm not sure. Yeah. Maybe it worked out better this way. But ultimately, I think having the credentials that I had helped me, like, kind of break down doors to say to, to places like Sportsnet and Vice Sports. Mm. I have the pedigree. Here's some of the stuff that I've written in the past. Yeah. Would you like me to write a story about Gordy Howe? Oh, you know, sick, scoring yeah. his 802nd goal or something like that, yeah. right? So that's really how it started was as a kid, uh, cool. you know, just kind of being drawn into history. And yeah. then as as an adult studying history and trying to make a career in history, mm -hmm. realizing that there's other things I could do yeah. with that historical training. And, and hockey was the thing that I was drawn to at that time. Man, it's cool. I've never heard anybody package um, like history in a, uh, like in that way that you're doing that. I think that's really, really cool. And what the more I hear you talk about this, the more I'm curious. Um, can you tell us what, like, the role of a historian does? Like, do you, because I was wondering if you just, like, can you predict patterns and can you predict, like, success of teams or do you, like, how does that, where does that fit as a role in, like, a professional sports team? Yeah, I mean, I think the role of a historian for any sports team, whether it's hockey or, or basketball, mm. um, is, to, is to provide context for the fans, right? I think mm. you're not necessarily going to be able to provide... Um, you know, a predictor of future success. But right. I think what you can do is connect the fans with the team that they love now. I mean, there's a lot of fans yeah. who, let's say, will choose the Toronto Maple Leafs because it's my Perfect. my team. Yeah. And I got a Leafs book coming out let's soon. Go. So like, let's there's go, new fans yeah. that you know know uh, yeah. you know Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews, but they yeah. don't know Daryl Sittler. They don't right. know like players Ty that Domi came before. Yeah, Matt Sundin. Yeah, yeah. But they care about the Leafs, and so I think if you are doing your job successfully as a team historian, like mm -hmm. if you can bridge the gap between generations and have them care about the broader team history, mm -hmm. that's a great opportunity not only for the fans to have a deeper investment in the team, but right. for the team to market that to other fans who were too young to have experienced uh, that. Right. Cool. And I mean, I think the other big thing that a team historian can do and mm -hmm. should do is. When I was doing a lot of work with the Wolves and other teams like the Kings, I was interviewing former players and former uh, uh, folks that worked in the management yeah. group. And so by being able to connect with alumni, mm -hmm. like you're making them feel involved and part of the alumni family. And so mm -hmm. I think that's another thing that the team historian can do. While a lot of these teams definitely have an alumni group that takes care of their yeah. alumni, I think making them feel involved through hey, this guy wants to interview you for a story about that time you scored a hat trick. Like, how yeah. do you feel about that? And and oftentimes, like, I, I talk to these guys who they haven't played for, like, 40 years. Yeah. And they're like, I thought nobody remembered me. Yeah. And so, like, that, I think, goes a long way when you have a conversation cool. with somebody and they get to go down memory lane. That story That's gets sick. put online. It gets shared. Maybe yeah. their family gets to read it. And they, hey, I didn't know Grandpa did that and, and uh, all these sorts of things, right? So I think there's a twofold yeah. approach that, like, you're bridging the gap for generations of different fans. Huge. Yeah. which is a marketing opportunity for the team. And then also, I think, being uh, being a connector uh, within the alumni group. Ah, that's so cool. And I like that a lot. That's uh, So it sounds like you've had like you've had quite the experience with um, like working with teams and like, mm -hmm. writing and communicating with all that sense because I can hear it not so much just in your... Uh, like, I commend you for that, man. Like, you're very well-spoken, and nice. I think that's very... 
it's very very cool like i can tell listening to you that you're you know your stuff and you're passionate about it and what i'm curious about too is um like where'd you what was like the first like how'd you go from post-secondary to like mcmaster to take us through from that timeline to like working with a sports team like you said with the kings but uh, is that the only one you worked with or is that the first one or like take us through kind of that uh that timeline if you don't mind like that yeah that was the kings were the first team so like by that point um you know this is it was 2018 and so yeah. i had just uh, no i was i was two years into working at cambrian college by that point i was writing a lot still for hockey i'd published my first book um i was writing consistently for vice sports which no longer exists now but yeah. at the time it was a great outlet sports, for me to yeah. to like wow. build my portfolio because yeah. i was writing for them like you know twice a month which was pretty decent for me at the time yeah. trying to balance like family and full-time job yeah, still. so i had a decent portfolio had the first book that was you know just about to come out and you know at the time i was like i knew that i had a really good gig going at cameron but there was always kind of like yeah. maybe this hockey thing could be a job and i mean it's 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 more of a hobby than anything i'm i'm quite happy with that but yeah. at the time i was thinking like maybe teams could actually use a team historian in like mm. a full-time capacity so i had yeah. done an exercise where i emailed pretty much every team in the nhl and asked like do you need or want a team historian and a lot of them got back to me and said no, we don't need one. We don't want one. Or a few of them said we have somebody who does oh, cool. kind of serve as both. So like, thanks for reaching out, but we're, we're good. Yeah. And so one of the teams that said they didn't need one or didn't have one were the Kings. And so I had this list going. And then for whatever reason, this kind of came up on Twitter one day where I kind of reiterated this on a in a post that like yes. you know the Kings yeah. was one of the teams that didn't need uh, a team historian. And so. They they replied to that tweet from their official account saying like we never got an email from you, <laughs> and I mean I knew I knew I'm like you, you did get an email from me. And I did go. talk to somebody, yeah. so I respectfully said yeah like uh, let me know like happy to chat. So then that conversation went into the DMs yeah. and then they got the email. Yeah, they you they, got the email. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> Amazing. That, the person that I ended up yeah, talking to was not the so person nice I emailed. Oh, um, there you go. But anyway, that turned into a yeah. conversation where they're like, we like what you're doing with the stories that you've been telling. Yeah. Like, would you like to do that for the Kings? And so that was my first time, you know, working with the Kings. And that started in the fall of 2018. Mm. And I, you know, worked consistently with them even throughout the pandemic. I wrote 60 plus stories for them. And that was honestly my first time working with a professional team and then not long after that that's when i became the team historian for the wolves nice. so like those two were kind of coming together at the yeah. same time the wolves one i had been more like seeking that out deliberately like trying yeah, to become you're here the team historian because yeah. i'm here and the kings thing kind of just worked out nicely and i basically became that's hilarious yeah. like a like a part-time writer for the kings and the and the wolves historian at the same time let's go yeah nice man um i wanted to you kind of got my gears going a bit with uh you said something at the beginning about like a, the creative outlet and then kind of using that now because that's kind of more so much what this is for me as well yeah. but how important do you think it is for people or let's go let's niche it a bit more let's do how important do you think it is for like men and then we'll go students as well you can almost pair them to have that creative outlet because if they're always doing this thing they're always focused on school and like you said they're reading and writing things they maybe don't want to right mm -hmm. but they're doing it for a greater purpose so it's like part of the process, but what do you think, uh, how, like, what do you think the, the importance of having like a creative outlet is like, talk to me about that. I think it's huge. Um, honestly, like I am a big believer that whether it's what I do or, you know, if it's a, a yeah. hobby you have or something you're passionate about, I think it's important to do those things because while you're doing those things, 
that time you have when your brain is maybe doing something differently or you're reading something like for pleasure that doesn't have anything to do with work like nine times out of ten something will come to me from that that will then benefit my work Mm. or i'll have a new idea that maybe i'm reading a book about fiction but something that the author has conveyed actually reminds me of work and it'll allow me to kind of take those learnings uh and and new ideas and bring it into the workplace and, and hopefully make my work better but i mean just from a fulfillment perspective like I love my job and I've got a great team and uh, I, I have no, like I, I'm not going anywhere. I've never thought about going to another job, but I yeah. think having, having that creative outlet is, is kind of also what kind of makes me so satisfied with where I currently am because mm-hmm. not only do I get to have a fulfilling career at Cambrian with my team doing the work that we're doing, but like on the side, I have these other things that Cambrian's not yeah. going to give me, right? Like I don't expect Cambrian to let me write about hockey or no. you know do probably you know, podcasts no. or whatever yeah. I want to do like on my on my Cambrian time, right? Yeah. So I think by being able to have something on my own that I think is still fulfilling, and I think still kind of works towards a lot of the goals that I have at the mm-hmm. college. I think it's a net benefit to me yeah. um, to to be able to have that, right? I've I've had conversations like this previously where you know I've talked to you know, former mentors who said, like, all I think about is work. And it's like, okay, well, that's that's great. I mean, to a yeah. point, but, like, there has to be more to life than work. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I think if we're looking at those outlets, at the end of the day, the point of those outlets is not yeah. to benefit work. No. But it'd be, it would be, like, you'd miss the opportunity if you didn't think that all of that is still part of building, yeah. like, a complete self where I could say that, like, the these journeys I've gone on, writing books and writing stories and talking mm. to people, yeah. um, like, that that helps me in, in everything that I do in life, right? Yeah. So it makes, you, it makes you interesting. It makes you able to almost communicate, not so much, well, communicate well with people, but also connect with them yeah. as well, right? Which I think is a very, very like under the radar trait that I think a lot of us need to have. And like, you seem to have it really well, just from the couple times you've chatted in today even, but it's, yeah, the ability to connect with people. And I think if you aren't, we'll go back to how you tell the great story, right? It's, I think it's, it's the connecting with the characters in the story, right? Yeah. Or relatability, connection, whatever, right? So you find that way that you've connected with people, but then you're doing it through storytelling um, with books and with like stories and like articles and stuff. But then I find doing it as a skill and having that like genuine ability to do that is from like, that's what the creative outlet does for you. Yeah. Right? It allows you to connect with those people. And then it's not just like, Hey, who are you? Oh, I'm the guy who does this. It's like, Oh, okay, well th- who's behind that? Like there's more to it, right? Yeah. Like you write hockey, you have family, you do this, you work here, you do that. And then, yeah, it's not just, I'm not just the dude it, like who works like the maintenance supervisor gig or do, mm-hmm. does like only one thing. And it, I almost feel it's better that way. Cause I've talked to a handful of, uh, like, uh, older friends of mine and mentors who have an identity issue in their late fifties. Cause they may have ran a business for X amount of 25 plus years. Right. Mike. And then what they'll do is they'll run that. And then they're like, they don't know anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is crazy to think. And then they don't have those other outlets that they can do because then if work's done, well, what's they yeah. live to work, and then well, what happens if work's done? Yeah, Are they don't live in. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. I mean, I think that like work shouldn't be your identity. I think yeah. a lot of people it is, and I mean, I think that works to a point. But I think your point is 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 correct that like at some yeah. point work ends for all of us, right? And if that's what you've kind of staked your claim in, and that's mm-hmm. what people know you as, like, what do you do after that? How do you transition out of work? Yeah. And there's more to you than work, right? So Absolutely. I think that's why it's been really important to me. It's what I think has made me 
well-rounded and has allowed me to pursue all sorts of other opportunities that have yeah. kind of come across because I've been out of, you know, my comfort zone at work and I've done yeah. these things and I think that's ultimately just enriched my, my experience. Amazing. Do you, um, what do you, uh, what's the job, uh, like, how did you uh, start working for Cambrian? Like, take me through that process. So right, I started yeah. working at Cambrian, um, fall of 2016, like, oh, yeah. it was two weeks after my first daughter was born. Oh, wow. So it was like a, a lot of was, new stuff. A lot of like, yeah, a lot of no stress at all, eh? No, yeah. But luckily, like Cambrian's not far from where we live, so actually it was a, it was oh, a better yeah. commute. So like that was helpful. But it was uh, it was a whirlwind process. But I was originally brought into Cambrian. Um, the work that we do is in applied research, and a lot of yeah. the work that initially we were doing was you would write grants. Um, to funding agencies to get funding to do R&D projects with companies. Interesting. And so the, yeah. the, the pitch for me with Cameron at the time was that you guys need a lot of grants r to be written in order to fund these projects. Yeah. I'm a good writer. I've been you know doing this yeah. for many years now. I can do research. I can talk to you know clients who might be in a different you know sector. Maybe they're an engineer from a mining company, but I can yeah. also talk to the funders. I could talk to the faculty. I could talk to the students and kind of bridge the gap across yeah. the board. And so that's that's what sold me on that job, and then from there um, I just kind of continued to do that job, working as a we were known as business developers, where mm -hmm. we were essentially developing businesses by bringing them into Cambrian, having yeah. them access our staff, faculty, students, and equipment mm -hmm. that would help them develop a prototype or a new process, hopefully make them a little bit more profitable yeah. and efficient. And then we honestly just went through um, a reshuffling period in 2018, where uh, my 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 former boss had pursued another opportunity, so that kind of left the department in yeah. a bit of a crossroads. And so I applied to become his replacement. I got that job in 2018, Sick. and I've been the director um, ever since. And so nice. I get to lead a team now yeah. where we're still doing that same work, trying to bring companies through mm -hmm. the doors at Cambrian, offer them funding opportunities. We're still doing a lot of that grant writing, yeah. um, but I think we've, uh, you know, we're, we, we're looking for different skill sets now. So I think if I were, you know, looking for somebody now, you know, when I was hired, I'd probably be looking for a different person. Mm. Um, but I think that writing is still really important in the type of yeah. work that we do. But I think it's the communication and being able to talk to a range of people yeah. is what's truly important because you're often going from the shop floor with a lot of these conversations to the boardroom yeah. when you're having to like pitch the idea of this funding right. application or tell your president why we should be investing money to you know, buy this equipment or why yeah. we should be doing this project. And so I think the communication is really what sets the business developers apart right. now. And I think I had that, but I know that it was really fortuitous for me at the time because yeah. the writing was still so important because we were still at the time very much focused on, uh, you know, we were eating what we killed. Mm -hmm. So if we didn't get a grant, we didn't do a project. The funding world has changed a lot more. So it's uh, not quite as, you know, uh, dire as it used yeah. to be, but it's, it's less, you're less reliant on, uh, on constantly churning out grants. Interesting. Huh. Dude, do you, um, man, it feels like when you're in that role, you have to be the person that bridges the gap from the people who, because there's a big disconnect from like the boardroom to like on site or in yeah. the shop, like the contractors, right? I even just had this this past week where these guys delivered like a bunch of fridges to 40 of the units I manage and they didn't calculate putting the boxes back as a trip. Oh, okay. Right? Like once they're, they got to come out of the boxes, right? And then, well, what are we doing with the recycling? And no, like, I guess the woman on their end didn't, like in their office, didn't like calculate for that time yeah. or where they're putting that. And so kind of just that example as a disconnect was, we were kind of, they're just like, well, we're not, we can't take all this. Like we've no room for it. And we're like, well, okay, well you can't leave it here. 
yeah. it's got to go. But then the woman on the other end was having that, they just couldn't figure it out. And so having that, like I can only imagine the importance of having that, especially in that role where you're having to pitch what they're doing under having a, not just an understanding of what the people in the shop or down underground, wherever it is, right? What they're doing and then go, hey, so you almost have to translate something, right? Yeah. Like completely different to, hey, this is what they're doing and this is why it'll benefit. And then most of the time, I don't think those people in those boardrooms have an understanding. They kind of just are like, okay, well, let's like, let's see, we'll fill it out. We'll check all the boxes and see if it meets what we're doing. And if it doesn't, then they don't really see the, like the people behind it or what really yeah. goes into it. So that can be tough, man. Some stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing too, is just like, just trans like to your point, like translating yeah. what people are looking for, right? Like oftentimes we're talking to frontline workers or engineers and like, I'm not an engineer. Uh, we do have engineers on staff. Yeah. So I think it's important to, when you're having those conversations, you're bringing in the people that are the technical experts. Yeah. So then I can at least Smart. translate what this pain point is. I may mm. not know what the solution is and I don't sure. have to, but I no. need to be able to explain that to a funder why this particular innovation is mm. important and explain to an executive why you should fund this innovation yeah. because you may not understand exactly what they're doing and why we need this engineered solution, but that's it's it's the ability to kind of walk between the raindrops and, yeah. and, and be able to communicate broadly, right? So I think having that skill where you can communicate with the technical folks, with the funders, with the executives, with the students who also yeah. have to then do the work um, is huge too, it's right? Tough. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, Mike, where do you think that skill started to develop for you? Like the communication skill? What do you have to uh, attribute that to? I think it was always just something I was interested in and yeah. I was like, uh, I think. Like I was good at it, I think is 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 a point, right? I think it's I don't want it's not a it's not a humble brag or anything like that. But hey I mean, if you're like, good at it, you're good at it. I right? was that was a skill that I yeah. had. Right? I think it's saying a skill it's saying I was skilled at it is better than saying I was good at it. But basically, mm-hmm. I remember like the days in like yeah. um, elementary school where yeah. we had like I don't think they do this anymore, but we used to do like speech competitions. Whoa, um, bring it back! Yeah, so like bring this was back. like grade 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 four, five, six. I was living in Thunder Bay at the time. And we wow. had like speeches, yeah. so you had to like make a speech, and then just about anything, just about anything. So I know that I can remember two of them for sure. Yeah, one was about the Blue Jays um, course, because this yeah. was like they'd won back-to-back World Series Let's when I was go. like uh, eight years old, yeah. right? So like Amazing. the Jays were everything back then, all the way back, eh? Yeah, and Jeez. then another one was about the Disney Imagineers. So these were the people that built the rides yeah. at the theme parks, uh, and so I don't know, I can't remember which one ended up winning, but like sure. I remember having to do a speech in front of the entire school and then being judged on how good your speech was. And this is the time before like the internet. Everybody's so, worst nightmare. So like, I don't know how we even Biggest figured fear. out like the research, like obviously the Jay stuff, we had a ton of Jay stuff, had Jay's books, so pulled fat stats yeah. from there. But the Imagineers one, I remember like recording a, an episode on like, yeah. di- like on, you know, Sunday night Disney and then going back and like watching the VHS tape, making notes yeah. and then putting the speech together. But so like I was obviously every time I get in front of an audience or yeah. in front of a person with a microphone, like there are nerves, but I think like I enjoyed that. Right. So even yeah, as like a 10 year old kid yeah. getting up in front of the whole school and giving a speech about the Jays mm. was like, that was my jam. Yeah. And so like, I think not knowing huh. that at the time that kind of makes sense with a lot of the stuff that I've done yeah. since then. Right. So, yeah, it does. And that's, I always find it interesting when I listen to people who are like, I'd say better than the average out of skill. Right. Or even outliers where, you know, like with, um, like, yeah, Outliers, uh, that was, yeah, that was Malcolm Gladwell's book. Yeah, yeah that was in yeah. the house. That was Outlaws, but no, that's something different. Um, but 
No, so with Outliers, because you talk, it's kind of cool, right, to go back and see the, um, where everybody's come from and be like, oh, like, how did you get good at this thing? It's like, well, actually, I was forced to be good at it young, yeah. forced to practice that skill young, which a lot of people, I don't think they've spoken in front of a school, let alone be critiqued, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but it feels like you're already being a historian at that time too yeah right? like doing the research on it figuring things out and kind of presenting it in a way that'll be like interesting to the people judging yeah really really cool yeah i mean that was a lot of the stuff that i like loved watching and, and reading yeah. about when i was a kid so it made sense that like i kind of resisted it for the longest time because didn't think there would be any job yeah. opportunities in that field but like when i go back and look at all the stuff that i was interested in it's like that made sense that i should have should have thought about this the whole time and yeah it, it's natural that i would have uh, gravitated towards that do you think, uh, take me through uh, kind of the beginning of Unlikely Innovators, your show. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. that's, a, that's a, a pandemic baby where, you know, we were at home, you know, much like everybody else trying to yeah. figure out like what can we do to continue to stay relevant and kind yeah. of, uh, you know, get our word out there about what we're doing at Cambrian when it comes to applied research. And mm. it kind of came, and actually, you know what, it started with, I wanted my colleague Steve, uh, Gravel to get on this other podcast to talk yeah. about the work that we were doing with you know his research uh, center called the Center for Smart Mining. Interesting, yeah. yeah. And we so, weren't able to get on that one because they'd already pre-recorded all their episodes. And I said, well, we don't need to get on a podcast. Like, let's just do our own podcast. Brilliant, yeah. And so we're like, there's not a lot of college applied research podcasts out there. So like, let's just do yeah. it. And 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 that's honestly what we did. So we had no idea what to do. Um, we just thought that maybe we should make a few episodes and we'll kind mm. of use those episodes to talk about applied research like what applied research is mm. how does the funding world work all these Smart. sorts of things yeah and the intricacies just, of it yeah just for like people that were interested in knowing more maybe for mm. our colleagues that wanted to kind of hear our perspective and so yeah. we started doing that realized we quickly ran out of material like after five episodes where we've exhausted like all of the main talking points for applied research what are yeah. we gonna do now <laughs> so then we're like well let's bring people on and like sure. that's honestly how it started and i yeah. mean the i think that was one of the reasons we knew we would get to that point with having guests, but I think for us, it's like unlikely innovators is kind of how Steve and I view ourselves. We're both history grads, yeah. so it's unlikely that we would be working in an innovation space. Yeah. Um, and then we also wanted to, I think, from our perch in Sudbury, Sudbury is still often viewed as a place that's unlikely for innovation, oh, for but there's so much yeah. innovation happening here that we wanted to kind of really shed yeah. light on what's happening in Sudbury. So if you go back and look at our first few seasons by design, yeah. like they're chiefly focused on Sudbury guests, yeah. right? Whether they're at, you know, they're working for the city or they're working for research uh, institutions or they're in the private sector, mm -hmm. like they're they're local, right? But then we realized that obviously with the gift of Zoom, Amazing. like you can talk to anybody around yeah. the world, and right? So we started to expand who we were talking to, but the theme always went back to unlikely innovation, right? Whether mm -hmm. it was a person who had an un unlikely career path yeah. that led to an innovative uh, approach or a mm -hmm. company that you know, was just really doing innovative things. We wanted to kind of shine a light on that. And yeah. all the while trying to always tie it back to applied research to say that like, these are the type of companies, these are the type of people that are working with colleges. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like that's, that was our main goal. right. I mean, for us, like we got to talk to a lot of really cool people. And while that was all related yeah. for work, because I think at the end of the day, like we're trying to, you know, associate that to the Cambrian college yeah. brand that people know that Steve and I work there. So ideally this podcast is a product and a platform from that work but mm. we because we've had the fortune of talking to so many interesting people in a variety of fields like i think yeah. that's helped us because you get to speak to somebody who 
has no. been a guru in a field for you know 20 30 years yeah. you can't help but soak up that information that they're they're telling you oh even a little right? bit yeah yeah you kidding yeah it'd be silly i mean you wouldn't be there if you couldn't right and yeah. i think there's something to be said for uh the skill set that you can gain from having those long-form conversations mm -hmm. with people right and i think that's something that personally i crave hence why we're doing this right yeah. is that curiosity and that like searching for like it, it helps my soul to be honest like it sounds kind of cheesy saying that but like it helps my soul like connect with people and understand not just people's stories but kind of what makes them tick why they mm -hmm. do certain things how they act right and i think a lot of that especially in um and why i appreciate um because i actually so i discovered your show when uh you had paul five on oh yeah yeah and so because i followed him and he was like uh, i saw that and i was like oh interesting and then I watched it, and what's nice about long form, um, and it's, I, it's always tough with politicians, I can imagine, um, because they're so like talking point, right? Yeah. Like they just have it, they're so good at it, right? So it's a challenge there, but I think what's interesting, and I think a lot of politicians you start doing more of it, is those long form conversations, yeah. right? Because then they can't read off a teleprompter, right? And yeah. you're able to kind of pose those questions that maybe gets them thinking of it differently, right? About things that they've thought one way for so long, that might be even somebody else's ideas that they've transformed into their own. Yeah. So I think it's it's a cool, cool skill. And I think that's, yeah, I think you're only doing better and better with every episode. So Thanks. it's cool to see, man. Yeah, we were kind of like at the, we had a, we tried different outlets previously, like yeah. newsletters and things like that. And we thought that, you know, if we're going to make the effort to really try to engage mm. with the community and with prospective clients like this long form medium through podcasting yeah. versus like writing newsletters seem to be the best way of doing it i mean yeah. it's oh, yeah it's true it's it's helped so much because i mean you would know this very well that like when you're having a conversation with somebody and it's being recorded if like if you can't like transition out of that answer to yeah. the next question or that question doesn't land and you've got to think of something else yeah. like you like you can't hide when when oh, that's no, when no. that's being aired right and so no. i think that's even helped me just with having regular conversations with people that Absolutely. aren't being recorded is that like because you have to really work at it right and you have yeah. to be focused and you have to be dialed in and you can't be on your phone because if you're on your phone you're missing a point and mm -hmm. so i mean it's 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 really been a great thing and i think definitely like if i would i wouldn't want to go back and listen to what our first episode sounded like oh, but I uh <laughs> But I think, yeah, I think as long as you're progressing yeah. and you're kind of always trying to improve yeah. and trying to improve the quality of the questions yeah, and being prepared, yeah. then then I think you're doing a good job. Yeah, I think you're right. Staying focused and being able to keep it dialed in is important. And I think, um, first of all, it could not be worse than my first episode. Well, I don't know. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> all right. So, oh man, we'll do a watch party one day. I think that's a fun idea. But what, uh, yeah, I uh, my first, yeah, I had a friend of mine on who was really bad paralysis by analysis, right? So he overthinks his answers, mm -hmm. and it takes like 11 minutes to get a question out of him. Um, I love the guy to death, but the thing that, uh, the, there are two things. So one, he was on because he wanted to talk about, like, he got jumped by like 11 dudes outside of like a club downtown. Oh. Yeah, and like it was like a race thing and whatever, so he came on and talked about that. <sighs> Dude, it's, it's just a disaster. But he is like, he's African. Mm -hmm. so like people like the whole thing was really weird and um he's told that story a bunch before and then he like had it like ready and then i guess follow-ups he wasn't really prepared for so he was overthinking those answers and then i remember asking when there was a lull i remember asking what his favorite color was <laughs> so like 
not good. Yeah. yeah. Well, we so I, I think bad. what helped us is that like it was just Steve and I for the first five. Yeah. That, so yeah. we kind of ironed out some of our kinks where Smart. you know I like yeah. I like I remember my boss and and she's awesome. She's the best of the time. Was like yeah. she's like it's a little it's a little cheesy. And I'm like, well, I mean, that is a little bit by design, but I had that in my head that, like, okay, let's keep that in mind and, like, let's not go too cornball. I I don't think we were, but I think Steve and I naturally kind of go down that that rabbit hole of maybe it's a little too... I think maybe we're trying to be a little too forced with it and trying to be, like, funny, although I think, like, the two of us together can be funny, but if you're trying too hard to be funny, it's It's never funny. never funny. So, like, I think that was good feedback because, Ah, like, you don't want to be that, it's like, yeah, this is a great episode with that interview, but when those two guys got back to talking, I had to turn it off, right? So you want them to listen from the beginning to the end. Right. So Ideally. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, I think, too, the thing was, is I didn't, I wanted to make it look like I didn't care. Yeah. And, um, that made it seem like if I don't care, why should you? Right? If yeah. I don't care to be here, yeah. And I'm like just asking my questions, and you're just you know talk. It's like it's not a good energy, right? And so I think, and I, I was able to like 50 episodes in, 80 episodes mm-hmm. in, finally be able to kind of develop like how, like who I am, like my personality, and just kind of just go with it. And I remember, so I had a host. I ended up getting thrown in as like a last minute MC, one of the MCs for this uh, event that happened a few weeks ago. And I remember I was ready to introduce speakers. Um, as one of the hosts, and uh, I was talking to her, uh, I'll give him a shout out because I love the guy. Like I was talking to Chris Cacciotti, mm-hmm. right? he's a friend of ours. Yeah, and um, he kind of like he was doing uh, like one of the poems as well that I was introducing. So it was like you know hundred hundred some people on hundred fifty on average that kind of just milled through the event throughout the day. But at that time, it was like the first. I was like, man, like this is you know like okay, like how close do I hold the mic to my face and stuff like that, right? Because it's here, it's different, right? Types of mic, everything, but. Chris goes, I was like, hey, man, like, I was like, yeah, how do you want to be introduced? And he's like, yeah, I'm sending to you. He's like, man, you got to, he's like, you want some advice? I was like, I'd love some. Like, pour it on me. And he goes, the first few times I was doing the Sudbury Five, I tried hard to be, like, this character of what I thought somebody would want to watch. And then I eventually, after the third or fourth, fifth game, I stopped doing that. And I, find, I like, became... Like somebody was telling me there, like, just, like just, I just decided to be myself yeah. and see, and then it ended up everything fell into place. And I yeah. was like, huh? And he's like, do not go against your better judgment. Just be you. Just go and talk. If you want to say a word or if you stumble, that's you. Just go. If you're nervous, say it. Like just, just do it, right? And so I had heard these things, but then for him to kind of like remind me and just tell me, like, dude, I tried being somebody I wasn't. It didn't work. Be yourself. Yeah. And I'm like, amazing. Yeah. Perfect. And then it kind of made everything that much easier the rest of the day. And I could just have fun with actually doing something like that, right? Yeah. Because it's supposed to be fun. And then when you're trying to, like, force something that's not, it kind of, not just so much for the audience, but you kind of feel awkward doing it. Yeah. Right? Especially as if you're a guest, too. And I was trying to be, so you're like, this isn't the person I FaceTimed with. Why are you yeah. behaving this way, right? So. It's yeah, funny so. because, like, uh, Chris's personality is actually, like, exactly what, you would expect in an, from an in-game host. Yes, like, 100%. Um, just normally. Just normally. Yeah. He's energetic. He's like he's yeah, enthusiastic. He's, he's upbeat. So like, I actually did a story one time for the Subway yes, Star. I, read it. I followed yeah. him around and like that was... Uh, you followed him around for that? Yes, yeah, so like I shouted Amazing. him for a game. Amazing. So like people yeah. probably were like, what's this guy doing? Like why is he w- walking around behind Chris? But like I was there to try to like soak up the experience and see what it's yeah. like to be an in-game host for the oh, five. that's cool. And I remember, like, yeah. I was, like, tired just, like, walking around with him. And I wasn't, like, lockstep beside him. Yeah. I gave him some space so that he could do his thing. Perfect, But, yeah. like, the amount of, like, just on the hardwood floor the whole night and, like, I'm lot. just trying to, like, get in the moment with him. It was, 
Yeah, it's uh, he does a great job. He's oh, the yeah. perfect, perfect, perfect fit for that role for, for sure. Yeah, yeah it's man, he's yeah, it's awesome. And I didn't know that you had to follow him around. Yeah, because oh, I wanted yeah. I wanted the immersive experience, right? I wanted like right. I could have easily just watched him from the crowd. Yeah. But my pitch to the star was like, I'm gonna like shadow him mm. and really see what it's like to like be in his yeah. shoes, so to speak. While he like walks around, does games, like talks to the fans, talk like stays at that the, high level, the opposing yeah. team's bench, like Amazing. all that stuff. So, oh, that's cool, man. So you get you have to get fully involved to do that because I think a lot of people could just sit back and write on what they've like witnessed. But I think yeah, I think the immersive experience is that much. Better. Yeah, like I, uh, I I really I try to do I try to do that when I can. Obviously, it's, it's yeah. hard to do that, but I, I really feel like being able yeah. to like kind of implant yourself into something. And then write about that experience. It's like those mm-hmm. are the stories I really enjoy writing about. But uh, it's it's difficult to get that. You need a lot yeah. of access to kind of like let me just be like shadow you for a day. Yeah. And then I'll write about it. Right. So it's uh, yeah, it's tricky at times. But mm-hmm. just speaking of things you like to write about, though, take me through uh, your books. Take me through how they kind of were. You always interested in writing or like writing, or were you? Just like one day somebody said, you should write a book about this. Like, take me through kind of that like creative process as well. Yeah, so that's actually, I think, an interesting story because, you know, when I was doing my PhD, mm-hmm. the culmination of a PhD is obviously you get your doctorate and you've got this dissertation. And, yeah. and normally, if you're going to go into academia, you take that dissertation and you turn it into a book because you've already written like yeah. 300 pages. Like a just, thesis. Um, yeah, yeah like it's, turn like, it into it's a big thesis. You yeah. just have to adapt it for a different audience, you know, if you're going to put it uh, yeah. to, a, to a publisher, right? So when I finished my PhD, I had a contract with the University of British Columbia Press mm-hmm. to take my dissertation and turn it into a manuscript. I was going to have to do a, some additional research because... They don't just take your dissertation and just publish it as is. It has to be slightly different because why mm. Why else would we publish this when the reader could just read your dissertation? Right. So that I knew sense. that this wasn't just going to be like a, yeah. a quick process. I was going to have to do some additional research, do some additional writing, and then put that all together. But I yep. quickly realized that like knowing that I wasn't going to go in academia, why was I going to write this book? That mm. a I wasn't getting paid for because yeah. there was no money in publishing books for academic audiences. Right. Yeah. So I had this contract that was essentially a non-paid contract, and I just couldn't get into it. Like I come home from work, and it's like I'm gonna work on the book tonight, and it's like can't do it. Yeah. Push it off another day, and that mm. just kept going on for months. And at, all the while, I started to write. I was writing about hockey. Yeah. Like on the side for like. You're still write. You're still exercising the skill. Yeah, I was yeah. still writing, but uh, I just wasn't working dude. on my book. I was yeah. like writing stories for Vice and for. Sportsnet and whatever Sports else, right? Night. So then um, I'm still under contract with the publisher. I go away, uh, go to Mexico in like 2017. Nice. And uh, vacation or like spring break? Yeah, no vacation. Like nice. took our four month old daughter. So it wasn't oh, wow. like a. It you wasn't, brought her on a plane? Yeah. Mike, yeah, no. Yeah, it was, that was a no. wild ride. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Quick detour. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that at we, all. Uh, <laughs> she, was, she was really good traveler. Oh, good. Thank so goodness. we got like halfway through. Almost halfway through the flight from Toronto to Mexico, yeah. and then the pilot comes on and says that like the bathrooms aren't working anymore. We've got to go back to Toronto, and so like our hearts sank because right like she was sleeping. She had been so good on the plane. We go back to Toronto. They can't fix the plane, so like we have to deplane, get a new plane. Now it's like three hours later. We get back on the plane. Now she's a mutant. And so, like, she's screaming, and, like, people are looking at us being like, maybe you should feed her. It's like, maybe you should shut up. Yeah, like, that's literally it. She's, yeah. she's uh, it's like, it's like, it's like oh, you have the answer. So, yeah, yeah, you think like, we didn't think of that. Yeah, it's like, you think it's like, it's 12 o'clock at night, like, she's just wrecked. So, anyway, yeah. we get to Mexico, get to the resort, like, way later than we yes. thought. Have a great trip. But the point of that story yeah. was that I'm on the beach reading a hockey book, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, 
you know, I've written enough hockey yeah. stories already. I've, I do a lot of like hockey history stuff on Twitter. I'm like, maybe I should just write a hockey book. Like yeah. life's too short. Like why am I wasting my energy trying to get this like academic book off the ground when I really don't have my heart in it. Mm -hmm. So I, on the way home on the plane ride, which goes much smoother than the first one there, I kind of put together a rough outline of what I wanted to propose. Yeah. Get home. I got a literary agent. He shopped the, the book project around, got a publisher. Nice. And then I started writing the first book and essentially it was just 365 yeah. short hockey history stories, one for every day of the year. Yeah. Called the book Hockey 365. 365 yeah. And then that Amazing. was it. And then I wrote the first one and then wrote another one during the pandemic. And then I've got another one coming out now. But honestly, mm -hmm. it came about quite literally because all my energy was spent like reading and writing about hit, uh, hockey yeah. at the time anyway. And it was just like, why, why invest all this time, energy and sweat equity into something that's mm -hmm. really not where my passion is. So I just kind of switched gears. I talked to the publisher said like, can you release me from this contract? Which again, yeah. they weren't paying me. So I thought it's a pretty easy thing to ask for. It so, wasn't? No, it was. Oh, okay, good. Cause I'm like, well, you're not, I, I haven't taken yeah. any money from you. I don't right, owe so. you anything other than like some, maybe some lost time that uh, you've invested in this project. But yeah. they're like, yeah, no problem. So then got that other Sick. contract that did pay me. Yeah. Um, and nice. that's, that's good. honestly how it started. Nice. And then you just, um, where do you pull inspiration from for it? Like, uh, how do you pick the 365 stories? Yeah. Like, how does that, uh, yeah, I mean, I it's, about? it's tough because like you try to, you try to pick the most uh, significant moments yeah. that happen like every day of the year. And admittedly, mm, like depending on who yeah. you cheer for tough. and how old you are, like what I think is significant on that day it, may yeah. not be what you think is, or maybe not what my mom thinks is significant, but yeah. You just have to use your best judgment. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's your book. So yeah. you do have some creative license to say, like, I don't care. Like, I'm going to yeah. write about this on this day. Yeah. But with those books where it was just broadly focused on hockey, yeah. like history in general, like, you had so much to choose from because there's so many things that happened on that mm -hmm. day. But I generally try to say, like, from what is most noteworthy for the sports history, mm -hmm. I would defer to that option, right? And so that's mm -hmm. why doing the second book Smart. allowed you to kind of go back and pick yeah. something else. Uh, and whereas with the Leafs book, you know, that's coming out soon, there's less options to pick from because you're just drawing from that one well. So like there's yeah. some days where, well, this is easy because this is the only thing I can find that makes mm -hmm. sense. So I'm just going to write about that. Yeah. Other days, you know, there's things where I'm picking that because like I remember that or I yeah. lived through that. So I'm going to talk about that because I know that best. Mm -hmm. But like going through the book now, you kind of like, oh man, like I miss, like, why don't I talk about that player? It's uh, like, but like you had your, you were focused on trying to find that story for that day. Yeah. You're not necessarily thinking about like, how can I find a story for Mikhail Grabowski? Mm -hmm. If he comes up in these stories, great. But yeah. there's, there's blind spots and there's a ton of stuff that like, I would, yeah, I mean, you could probably do another Leafs 365, yeah, for sure. you know, but, uh, but we'll, we'll see how it does. But, uh, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm happy with it as a, as a fan of the team. I think it speaks to, to me, but I know that, you know, if you're 65 mm -hmm. years old, your viewpoint on the team would be different than mine because yeah. you've likely lived through yeah, uh, different a Stanley era, Cup as yeah. well. So, actually, no, they wouldn't have. They would have been just yeah. uh, two years uh, too late. So, <sighs> two years man. But uh, what's your uh, what's your kind of research creative research process like when it comes to picking the stories? And like, do you? That's what I'm asking too. With that, is like, do you go through and then you just check all them off? Like, what's something um, in that process for you that um, maybe not like somebody could use and like, Oh, like, okay, well, this is how Mike kind of approaches the book. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you, do you every day write X amount of words or X amount of find X amount of stories? Like, how does that, 
Yeah. That work? So, I mean, I'll, before I get into any of those books, like I, yeah. I find all of the stories. So like mm. I'll at least at a cursory level, like this day is going to be about, you know, yeah. like uh, Austin Matthews, his debut. Perfect. And then I'll put that all in a, in a uh, spreadsheet. So yeah. I've got all the dates lined up. And then once the book starts rolling, I start just researching. So like mm. I'll spend, you know, maybe a few nights in a row where I'm just doing the research. Yeah. And then I'm simultaneously also doing writing. So like, oh, perfect. Yeah. I do this kind of not insane approach, but like I'll go to Dollarama, buy like six sheets of Bristol board, put big calendars on them, mm-hmm. and then I know that I have to write 365 stories. So I take 365 pennies, yeah. and I place like Amazing. basically two pennies on yeah. every day in this calendar thing on the floor. And I know that in order to get Jeez. this done by this deadline, I'm going to have to write two stories this day, three stories this day, and, and on and on, right? And then I put that into a, a spreadsheet, wow. and that's my roadmap to say that, like, Monday, Wednesday, you know, this week, yeah. I'm doing three because it's a, I'm behind. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, like, I've got, like, my bare minimum it. where I'm doing oh, two a day. Sick. So basically... I like that approach, yeah. Yeah, like, very it's, visual. it's it's very visual. Yeah. It keeps me organized. It keeps me focused on it. But uh, I think you need that because otherwise, like, you can just say, I'm just going to take a day off. I need a day off. It's like, mm-hmm. you can't take a day off because, like, this is due in December and you still have to write 111 yep. more stories and there's yep. only 95 days. So what's your plan for doing that? So I think mm-hmm. what I've learned is with the book process that when I did the first book, I, lit- I only had, like, a six-month window. Yeah. So it was an insane sprint to get that book done. I had a little bit of a longer runway with the second one, bigger runway with the third. So it's been more manageable. I'm currently working on another one right now. And I've been able to like not write on the weekends if I didn't want to, which is huge because like with those first couple of books, like it was like pretty much like anytime I had spare time outside of family time and work time, like I was doing that. Right. And it's, it's fine, but it's not always enjoyable. Right. When you're like under the gun, it feels forced at that point, less of a actual creative fun thing to do uh yeah. do you have of the of your first book let's go with hockey 365 do you have of the 365 days what was your favorite story Ooh, um i mean to be honest like it's hard to pinpoint one exactly but like mm-hmm. the second book um i think because i was a little bit more comfortable as a writer and okay, perfect, like a yeah. little bit more established as a hockey historian and a hockey writer yeah. that I think the stories that I liked the most were the ones where I can kind of like be a little bit more off the wall and maybe pick some more quirkier stories. Yeah. Um, I mean, the one that I always say for sure, and maybe it's a, it's not a cop out, but like Austin Matthews made his debut, you know, October yeah. 12, 2016. That was like th- two weeks after my daughter was born. Mm. And so she watched she didn't watch the game with me she was there with me she was sleeping but she was wearing maple leafs pajamas oh it's cute you know so he scores four goals which is a modern nhl record you know every senator's fan will tell you they lost in overtime which they did uh doesn't matter he still had the record um and it was still an electrifying debut so like when i wrote that story in the book i talked about like that experience of like Mm -hmm. being with my daughter and watching that because for a lot of Leafs fans, like that's been a kind of where were you when that moment happened? Because yeah, it's obviously a significant moment in franchise history. You've got this player coming in yeah. who's been like billed as like the next you know great player for the team. Oh, of course. and he is. And yeah. so that's what I wrote about, and I included the part about like me and my daughter, right? So I think the stories debut for goal. Yeah, just yeah. Like that was the first hockey game that we watched together. He has uh, a crazy debut. Yeah. Um. So like that's for me like that was my most the one I enjoyed writing the most because it really was kind of like a piece of me in the story, in the book. That's cool. Yeah. That's really, wow. Yeah. And you can't, 
man, you can't plan that again either. Like, no. You can't. Like, there's so many, like, uncontrollable variable, variables at play there that yeah. it's all lined up. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, that's awesome. So, kind of looking back a bit now, do you, um, do you have any, like, advice you would have done differently? Or, like, seeing just kind of how everything worked out, like, do you have any two-part two question? Advice for you, like, young Mike, graduating post-secondary, and then after that, we'll go uh, like general advice for somebody who maybe doesn't know where they uh, where they want to go or what they want to do. Yeah, so you can do a you first, and then um, we'll yeah, the second one. Well, I mean, I think the obvious one would have been that I should have gone in history like yeah. earlier, like right. right off the hop. That's what I should have pursued. But I mean, mm -hmm. then again, though, like the journey was the journey that I had, right? I think it was important <laughs> for me to go through those failures. Mm -hmm. before I eventually found myself in the path that I should have been on yeah. because then that allowed me I think to really appreciate where I was going that being said like I did waste like two years of university like right. not going to class and like failing so like I probably could have made better use of that time sure but I think the the process and the journey you go on is still all part of where you arrive at the destination right so mm -hmm. I think I needed to do that to get to where I am um, but so beyond maybe me just kind of like better positioning myself to mm -hmm. make use of my experience of post-secondary, I think I wouldn't change anything. I think that, uh, ultimately yeah. I had a different idea of where I thought I would arrive at when I finished school. But mm -hmm. I think the, the journey I went on has still prepared me for this other career that I've had yeah. and this other side hustle that I've had. So okay. like, I don't think I would change that because I needed to get those skills mm. to do what I did. I always, people always ask like, would you, what would you do if you could go back in time yeah. and go to like a different program? And like, yeah. I yeah. think about it and like, I'm like, I really like graphic design. Like, and I didn't know that that was even an option for me. Like maybe mm. that's something I should have done, yeah. but then I wouldn't have all of this, right? right? Like I'd be a graphic designer and that would probably be great, mm -hmm. but maybe I'd be missing the piece that really liked history as well. Right. So, yeah. um, but I mean, I, th I think for other people, the advice I have was the advice that I was given by a prophet, Laurentian, who's a, who's a good friend now, Mark Kulberg. Nice he said, out, yeah. uh, market yourself as broadly as you can. Amazing. And I think that is what I would tell anybody now who doesn't know what they want to do, um, is to, is to think more broadly, like your degree, uh, or your diploma is going to say, you know, those two, three let two or three words about what your program is, but mm -hmm. like, that's not you. Yeah. It's the skill sets that you have that you acquire through getting that diploma or degree. Yeah. And that's, what's important. So, I mean, I think beyond that, uh, go with what you're passionate with, like yeah. follow what you want to do, um, and see where it can take you. Because I think nice. if you listen to other people to say like, well, you should do this because it's going to be a higher paying job. It's like, at the end of the day, it's important to obviously money pays for bills and things like that, but you're not going to be completely fulfilled or happy no. if you're just taking a job because you think that's what you should do. You should right. find a job or try to find a job or a career that provides you with fulfillment mm -hmm. in a field that can allow you to take care of yourself and your family. Right. Which is, yeah, it goes uh, back to what we were saying about the identity thing, right? It's like, oh, if yeah. I'm doing this just to get paid, it's like, well, it's not really the best thing for, I think, a mental health side of it. And then also trying to, like you said, take care of family, take yeah. care of pursue, but so, uh, yeah, Mike, I think um, what I really enjoy about people like you is you're a very good communicator. You're very well-spoken, very articulate. You've, you say, uh, you said a few words and like, I've only had this a few other times where like somebody used the word archetype on like my 25th episode. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> like I don't often feel in over my head when speaking to, with people. And like uh, when some people use certain words, I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> Like dissertation rolled off your tongue too well for me. And I was just like, all right, deep breath. Let's get into it. So <laughs> I really appreciate your time today, brother. I think, um, yeah, I'm very excited to 
see kind of what you do next and uh, follow kind of what your uh, what your goals are and how uh, everything lines up for you. So I'm just yeah, man, I'm really grateful for your time and I uh, can't wait to uh, see where uh, see where uh, your life takes you next. So right on, thanks uh, very much for doing the show, man. I really yeah, appreciate likewise, it. thanks for having awesome. me. Awesome, appreciate it.